0: Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there is not going to be enough for us or and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word and we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that as we come here this morning and we sing together and we feast at your table together and we pray and we worship together, God, that we would also be open and willing and humble to receive your word. God, this is this parable is such a warning for us to pay attention, to be ready. And we've been talking about that for the last few weeks, God, just being ready and prepared for your coming because you are coming back. You left and you said, if I go, I I will also prepare a place for you. Will I not come back and get you? And Lord, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. We don't want to be like the foolish virgins who were not prepared, um, who did not keep oil in their lamps. And Lord, as As Mark exposes what the the truth of this uh, parable is, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, open our minds. God, I pray that there's anyone here that uh, doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you. God, I pray you would prick their heart. Holy Spirit, that you would descend on this place like a heavy hand um, on those of us that we we need conviction, which is all of us. God, would you bring conviction to our hearts and allow us to be contrite before you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that you would be glorified in this time. Amen.
1: Uh, We're going to be in uh, parables again. This is the longest series so far we have ever done. And we are coming towards the end. We have a few more parables that I want to share with you. Uh, But this is just rich in what Jesus wants us to know and to experience today. And I want to encourage you that as you go through these parables, if, if like I did when I grew up, believe that the parables were supposed to be simple, and we're supposed to just grab it right away what Jesus is trying to say, and that he had crafted this new way of teaching so that he could just, in a, in a nice story, sum up all of the mysteries of the universe. Then uh, I hope that you will dig a little deeper and realize that that's not how Jesus described the parables. And instead, he said, The parables are written so to, that only those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will actually glean what he's trying to say, what he's trying to communicate. So. Uh, The parables have been a great series. Um, If you're missing any, I know we've got a bunch on fall break this week. uh, And so if you've missed any and you'd like to follow up on our website, you can see any of our past uh, sermons on parables. So we're coming to a close, so I hope you'll hang in with us um, through that. All right, Uh, Tracy read our parable, and I want to remind you, last week we talked about the persistent widow. And when you see certain key words like for, therefore, nevertheless, what are you supposed to do? Somebody said it? See what comes before it. Similarly, in this parable, it begins with the word then, which can communicate a number of different things, but also communicates, I am continuing a thought. And if I'm continuing a thought, then that means, well, let's not just jump in towards the end of the thought, because let's be honest, we've all been victims of being in a conversation and somebody jumps in at the tail end, has missed the entire context of the discussion, and then they take it off into some weird thing. Everybody just stops and looks like, what are you talking about? We can come to Christ's teaching in the exact same way. So when we come across certain words, we want to back up And in Matthew 25 verse 1, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So let's back up. And there's actually a parable immediately before this, which is kind of bundled with this one. We're not going to go over it today, but it's very similar in context to the parable we're talking about. But before that parable begins the discussion of what Jesus really wants us to know and why he's telling us these parables to begin with. So if we jump back to verse 24, verse 36, it says this, "...but concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only." He's talking about the time in which Jesus will return. Now you remember last week we talked about the persistent widow, and what Jesus was asking was, what will he find when he returns that is happening among his people?" And what we found that he desired was that we would be crying out for him day and night, that prayer would be a regular part of our daily existence. So he's continuing this thought of what is going to happen in this time between Jesus' first coming that a lot of people missed and the second coming that no one will miss because his second coming will be like lightning flashing across the sky. Everyone will see it immediately and everyone will know what's happening. But concerning the day and hour of that coming, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Uh, Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So when we come to this part of Scripture, this is where some of us check out quite honestly. And the reason we check out is because there is so much misinformation and conjecture around the second coming of Christ. We don't really know what it's like. Some of you have read the entire Left Behind series, and you are experts at at least that vision of what it's going to be. But that's one of the reasons that for most of us, whenever we start talking about the second coming of Christ, we check out. Because quite honestly, we are not sure that we want to dive in and figure out what he's talking about, and we don't want to jump into the hysteria. But Jesus consistently taught about his coming again, and that he wants us to be prepared. Now, the question that I usually have with a parable like this is, well, what does it mean to be prepared? Does anyone else think that way? Like, oh, I want to make sure I'm one of the good ones. I want to be one of the wise virgins, right? I don't want to be one of the foolish virgins, and. If we're going to understand the parable, we have to understand a little more about what in the world he's talking about as far as the bridegroom and these virgins. For one thing, the word virgin does not mean that none of these women are married and that none of these women have ever had sex. It is not the traditional understanding of virgin. It means that in a wedding in Palestine about this time, whenever a couple would get married, and some of you, you've been in weddings, some of you have so many friends, you're, you're done with weddings. You're like, don't don't ask me to be in your wedding again. I don't know who you are. But I you know when you've got a lot of friends and I see some people and they're just like like every weekend there's another wedding I think I don't know how you survive that. But in Palestine when you would get married you would go through a ceremony. And then there was a period of time that the couple would leave the bride's house and they would go to the groom's house and then there would be a big party. And when that would happen it was a big ceremonious thing and you would have the bride, the bridesmaids, essentially, the, the, those who were closest to the bride, would essentially walk them from one house to the next. And depending on how close they lived, that distance could be pretty far or it could be pretty close. Often that walk would be at night, and so they would light their way by, the. basically the bridesmaids would carry their lamps, and they would walk with the bride and the bridegroom until they reached the house, and then the party would commence. Now some of the problems that we have when I, at least for me when I read this parable is I think, okay, why did they not have oil? That seems like that should be a given, right? That it seems like they should just have marked that off their list. They've got a lamp, but they have no oil. Why didn't they do that? That doesn't make sense. Another hang-up I've had over the years as I study this is, you know, why would the wise Uh, virgins or bridesmaids why would they not share their oil with others isn't that the jesus you know thing to do wouldn't they share and the reality is is that when we look at this parable we have two groups of people that one is prepared anxious awaiting ready and one that's not And the reason that those with oil decide not to share it with those who don't have it is simply because if they give away their oil, they may not be able to make the entire trip from one house to the next. So the issue is not just one of sharing like, I'm not willing to share with you. The issue is we cannot complete the task if I give you any of my oil. Then none of us will have enough to make it to the house. So as we go through this, I want you to begin thinking about what does it look like to be prepared? Because another way we often read these parables is we think in some kind of mini panic attack, have I been good enough? Am I doing enough? Have I prepared enough? And what does it mean to be prepared? And am I the wise or am I the foolish? I'm not really sure which it is. But interestingly enough, marriage is often in scripture, The illustration for your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Some of you who have come from families with strong marriages, that is a very good, warm way to think about your faith. For those of you who have come from difficult family relationships or difficult marriages, then that may not be the best image for you to think about your relationship with Christ. For the fact that some of us have bad experiences does not mean that that shouldn't still be a good way to describe our relationship with him. Because one difference in this parable and in the way that things would work in Palestine is they are only ushering who in the parable? Who is it? Oh, now you've got to back, go back and read, right? Or is it the bridegroom and the bride? It's just the bridegroom. Whenever we read back in other places in Scripture, what we find is that this is one of the descriptions of him talking about our relationship with Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, And the church. So, literally, the very foundation of marriage is meant to be a way that we understand what it looks like to walk with Christ. The marriage relationship for us is as fallible as we are in the fact that none of us have perfect marriages. I I don't know about you. I'll be honest. I don't have a perfect marriage. Deidre's getting better all the time, but I don't have. No, I'm just kidding. She's not here today. She went to the beach and left me and the kids, so I can say, no, I'm kidding. She actually is there, but but none of us have perfect marriages. We get on each other's nerves. We say the wrong thing. We do the wrong thing. We could be more caring and loving than we are. At sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes we're very giving of ourselves. Other times we think, why aren't they giving more for me? Why aren't they taking care of me more and, and, you know, making sure I'm happy? There's all kinds of ways that we within our lives are not necessarily demonstrating the best relationship between Christ and the church. It does not change the reality that marriage is supposed to be that picture, that commitment, that love in which we are willing to give everything of ourselves for the other, the coming together as one so that we are no longer who we were, but now we are something else together. This is one of the reasons that divorce is talked about so vehemently in scripture, not because we've broken a rule, but because there's something that mends lives together and when you break them apart, it doesn't come apart cleanly. There's suffering that goes on. If any of you have been through a divorce, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a painful suffering process, which is why much of scripture tells us how to live our lives. Because he's trying to help us avoid the pain and struggle that we so naturally bring upon ourselves. We often read his warnings and the things that he calls us to, the laws and scripture, as something that is supposed to tell us you're supposed to do one thing and not the other in order to please God. And, And this view, this transactional view, many of us in the room hold to it. If I'm good enough, God will bless me. If I do enough good things, if I do the right things, God will be on my side. If I make sure that I take care of my quiet time and my Bible study and I do all of these things, then all of a sudden God is going to be there for me. And then that's why we struggle when we do all those things and we perceive God's not here for me. So we ask, God, where are you? What have I done wrong? And that's the transactional view of following Jesus. And it's messed a lot of people up. That is not the view in which Jesus constantly shows us, in which we give something so we get something. That's why marriage doesn't work that way either. We can't just give something in order to receive something. Instead, it has to be deeper than that. Our relationship with Christ has to be deeper than that. And that's why Paul describes marriage Of giving our lives up for each other just as Christ gave his life up for the church. It is a literal dying to myself, not just in my walk with Christ, but as a dying in myself in my relationship with my spouse. And that's painful at times. It's not natural. It doesn't just happen. Another problem I often have with this parable is when I read it, I just think, gosh what if we don't make it? Now, I wouldn't be the first person who thought that. Every person in this room thought that. And you wouldn't be the first people who thought that either, because even Paul thought that. Paul said, gosh, I just, after all this, I just want to make sure I don't miss it. After all that we've preached, all that we've done, I don't want to be myself absent from experiencing the rewards. Here are a few things I want you to take from this today. Number one, the same thing that we see everywhere in all the parables, we see right off the bat in this one, parables are about what? Kingdom of God. You all have probably been watching the news this week, right? And some of you in this room are very happy. Some of you in this room are very not happy. One of the things that we've got to learn, and this is what I believe is the great struggle of the church today. One of the things we have got to learn to do is live in the kingdom of God, not try to get God to fix the kingdom of man. That's one of the things we struggle with. That's why we have so much division in the church and so much division in our country is because we are expecting fallible people to somehow fix all the problems that we have. The reason Jesus taught these parables and the reason he says this is for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear is because he knew we would struggle with this. We're not the only ones. Remember, we look back into this time in which Jesus was literally walking the earth. Many of those religious leaders believed that the Messiah was going to provide political Freedom. They were going to come and cast out all of their enemies. And then they were, as a nation, going to be able to live in harmony and joy and peace and prosperity. And so their idea of a Messiah was very much a political and military leader that would come and rescue them. And Jesus was trying to say them over and over again, this is not my way. This is your way. This is not my way. And so he coined this the kingdom of God and this is why his teaching is just like comparing it to marriage. This is why it's a mystery because it doesn't always make sense. It's a mystery. And the kingdom of God is not going to be obvious to everyone only to those who are looking and listening. Parables are about the kingdom of God. There is a way that we live in this world but we don't put our hope in this world. Second thing that we see from this, and this is a very uncomfortable truth, and if you've been with us for a while, you know we've talked about this. The virgins represent the church, wise and foolish. Whenever we look at this parable, the virgins represent the church, those who are attending, those who claim to be disciples, those who are supposed to be following Jesus. And within that group of those who are in the church, we have wise and we have foolish. That's how they're described by Jesus. I think there are lots of ways we can describe that difference. So the reality is, is we have two groups within the church. The bridegroom, as evidenced by many places in Scripture, is Christ. And the reason that there's no bride mentioned is because that is the church. So as we look at this story, the question is, is why are there people in the church that don't make it into the banquet? This is one of the parables I don't like. It's not a fun parable. It's a hard parable. Why didn't they share their oil? One. Number two, if you were late to a good friend's wedding reception, are they going to lock the door so you can't get in? Probably not. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Most of us would say, oh, come on in. Come on in. Depends. Now, if you were supposed to bring the cake, they may lock you out. You know, right? But what Jesus says within this parable is that when they come and they walk to the bridegroom's house, those that have had to go and buy oil because there wouldn't have been enough to make it to the house without it, they arrive and the door is shut and no one will open it. Now whether that's because the party is so going on inside that they don't even hear them, but in what we know about the rest of the teachings of heaven and what it means to follow Christ, there are those that know Christ within the church and there are no, those that don't. Now we can have a philosophical theological discussion about well is that are they really the church? And there are lots of definitions of the church. We are a church, Journey is a church, and we are just but one group of people that make up the vast church that is the body of Christ around the world. We're one little bitty sliver, little bitty sliver. And that's why it's so important that we never look upon the church in which we attend as in we are the end all be all. We are the definitive church. We are better than other churches. We are one little bitty sliver of the bigger body of Christ that we all have a mission and a place within this world. The church, as we know as we read through the New Testament, is made up literally of those who are truly disciples of Jesus. And yet, the analogy that he's using here is saying that those who claim to be the church may not actually be. But aren't you glad you got up early to come this morning? The versions represent the church what I've already said and what we know also that Jesus is talking about and and why he's using this allegory is that this is the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. We read in Ephesians 5, our goal between now and then is to be presented to him and that time in which he returns that we are spotless and without blemish, that we are holy and that we are one with him. That's what we're supposed to be doing right now between the first and second coming of Christ. This is that time in between. And that leads us to an uncomfortable reality. Number four, God is going to delay his return longer than people expect. Scripture tells us that a time is coming when people will reject the gospel. It's already here. There's a time that's coming that people will walk away from their faith and it's already here. There's a time that people will leave and they will go and find teachers that will teach them the things that they want to hear. It's already here. And what Scripture prophesies is that before Jesus returns, the church is going to fall into this obsolescence, this persecuted existence. And this is one of the primary reasons because... God is going to delay His return longer than anyone expects. Even now, there are people today to say, well, it's 2,000 years ago. I mean, if He was going to come back, He already would have come back. This is one of the tests of our faith in which Jesus is trying to not only prepare them, to prepare us, that this bridegroom who was coming later than they expected, in which they had all fallen asleep, when that time happens, when that lightning flashes across the sky, when everything happens and everyone knows Jesus is here, and they wake up, the question is, will you be ready in that moment when everybody wakes up? Will we have prepared? God's going to delay His return longer than expected. In Luke 14, this is how he describes the choice, knowing that the return is taking longer. It says, great crowds accompanied him, talking about Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. While we can apply that to a number of things, what Jesus is literally saying is, don't say you're going to follow me unless you know what you're getting into. And that means that we may, it may be a while. It may be a lot longer than you expect. Many of the things prophesied of what's going to happen in those end days before Jesus returns, I I don't know if they've happened or not. Depends on whose book you buy, right? The books that are on discount clearance, they've already happened, right? (laughs) The more expensive books are still to come. We're waiting to see. Are they really going to be right? And well, no, it's not going to be right because Jesus has clearly said no one knows the time except for the Father. They don't know. They're just trying to sell a book. And yet what he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, and this is what I think is really at the heart of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and something that we have got to struggle with. Do I read parables like this and think, what have I got to do for God to let me in? I fall into that thinking sometimes. I know I'm not supposed to, I'm a pastor, supposed to have all this stuff figured out, but I still fall into, at times, I do enough good stuff, then God will be okay with me. That is not the gospel. In fact, that is this whispered corruption of the gospel that tells you that God's not going to love you unless you are good enough. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God so loved you that he sent his son to die on the cross for you that you, though none were good, no one was good enough, he would give his life so that we could know him forever. And so as I read this parable, and I, when I'm tempted to think, well, gosh, well, am I doing enough? You know, I, can you imagine if you were dating somebody and that's how you analyzed your time with them? Could you imagine? Well, gosh, I've got to do, do enough good stuff so that they will stay with me. That was a, that's a horrible existence. That would be a horrible way to live your life. And instead, what he's asking us is not, will you do enough good stuff that I'm okay with you? What he's saying is, do you love me enough that you look forward to the time in which I return? Are you waiting patiently and excited that I'm coming again? Do you have enough fulfillment in your life with me now that you are waiting and you can't wait to see me return? I've sometimes wondered at different parts of my life. When I look at the evil in the world, you, just, you see pain in the world. It's just not hard to see it. You see pain and suffering. I just think, you know, wouldn't it be just easier? Once a person became a Christian, they just immediately went to heaven. Have you ever thought that? I've, I've thought that. When life's not going the way you, thought, you think it's going to go, those are the kinds of things you think about. And you think, gosh, you know, Jesus, you know what you should have done? If we could just go around here, and this is actually the way most churches operate, if we could just go around here and we could win somebody to Christ and then they would just immediately go to heaven and we didn't have to worry about the in-between, it would be so much easier. Because the in-between the in is the hard time, isn't it? The in-between is that time from which I have the hope. I see the future glory. I see what's coming. I see the promise. I I can't wait to see this come to fruition. And then you also see what is happening in and among and around us today. And you see the pain and you see the suffering and you see the hurt. And you say, Jesus, can't we just solve this problem by just removing people? Wouldn't it be easier? And listen, here's here's the thing. If you would go around and a person prayed to receive Christ and they went boop and they were gone. People would stand up and notice. Now, I don't. I honestly don't know which way they would go at that point. I, they'd probably be tempted not to, you know, ask Christ to be their savior because they don't know where they're ending up. They just disappear. But that could be a great thing, right? People would see something supernatural is happening. We didn't have to just talk about our lives and talk about what's happening within us. People could actually see it. But he says, "Oh, it's going to be a while." And not just a while. I mean, it's going to be longer than you're comfortable with. And that leads us to that uncomfortable question of, if this is going to take longer than I'm comfortable with, what do we do in the meantime? All right, sermon's over. Leslie's killed it. <laughs> Which is part, part? It's part. Part. Fifth thing that we see from this parable is that those who are not truly prepared will run out of time. There is coming a time. This doesn't fit for some of our, the ways we like to share the gospel today because this is a reality that we, we would like to erase from Scripture There are all kinds of ways we try to erase it. We talk about, well, there is no hell, or hell's really not that bad, or, you know, God just loves everybody, and and God gets to do whatever He wants, and He wants everybody to be with Him in heaven. This is where we've come to this, this uncomfortable reality. The Scripture says over and over again, there is coming a time, that time is coming to an end, and then we are going to have to give an account. It's an uncomfortable reality. This is how Peter describes it. He says, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, their scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This time is coming, and one of the reasons that Peter describes why he's taking so long is because his desire is that more people would come to a relationship with Christ. More people would experience it, see it, and come to repentance. There is a place in which we have to wait, not just because he doesn't want to come back or he wants our suffering to be prolonged, but because by the longer he waits, the more opportunity he has to reach people. As we look at this, we have to recognize that we do have a place to play in this. And I think when it all boils down, all of these things we can easily grab out of the parable. But there's something that's not so easy to grab out of it. And that is, what exactly is the oil? What exactly is that thing that demonstrates preparedness? What is that thing that if missing, we are not going to be able to have a relationship with Christ? What is it? And I think there's a lot of things we can fill in the blank. And I think evangelism is certainly one of those things. We are called by the Great Commission to go out into the world and tell people about the love of Christ. We sometimes like to use our end times theologies in order to beat somebody over the head and tell them you're not going to get in to see Jesus. That is an uncomfortable reality we at, at times have to play. Somebody makes us mad and we like to say, well, heaven's going to be withheld from you because you don't believe the way I do. You don't act the way I do. You don't value the things I value. And so we sometimes like to slip into this role of judge and tell people who's going to be in and who's going to be out and which Jesus has consistently said, be primarily concerned with yourself and just go tell people about me. And then the Holy Spirit will take it from there. A lot of times when we read these things, it is uncomfortable. But, but what does it mean to be prepared? What does the oil represent? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a six-step program in which that we could ensure that we did all the right things? I would love that. I love six-step programs because I love to check boxes. It makes me feel better about myself. It makes me feel better about what I'm doing. That's not the way Jesus works. So what does it look like? Let me suggest a few things and some scriptures that will go along with it. I don't think what Jesus wants us to do is to sit around and be scared about whether or not we are prepared enough. That goes completely against everything he says it looks like to be in a relationship with him. That I want you to just to be a little off-center and uncertain as to whether you really have a relationship with me. That is not the way Jesus wants us to live our lives nor do we have to live our lives in that way. If you'll just do more, then you'll, I'll be okay with you. That is, that, that is a living hell. Whenever you are trying to be good enough and you never know whether you're good enough, that is a living hell. That is not what it looks like to walk with Christ. So what does it look like to be prepared? I want to suggest a few things. Number one, I think it means that we have an authentic spirituality. Your identity is in Christ. Christ. That means that your spirituality is real to you. It's not something that you put on in the morning like your clothes. And so whenever you go out, whether you go to church or whether you go to work or whoever you hang out with, uh, it, that you have to put it on and you have to kind of fix yourself up so that you can look the part wherever you go. Instead, let your authentic spirituality be that you are, your identity is in Christ. What does it look like to really walk with him and to say, I have given all things so that I can be with him. He is the pearl of great price, the treasure buried in the field in which I am going to go sell everything I have because that treasure is better than everything else I own. I will tell you there is a rest and a beauty in authentic spirituality. I will tell you this, and this is what I find the the older i get and the more i follow christ i find that i find that people are uncomfortable with authentic spirituality because it's easier to look a false part than it is to live a real one there are all kinds of things i one of the reasons that we as a church we don't have you know 35 belief statements you have to adhere to in order to be a part of our church I have very specific beliefs that I have developed over my life. Now, some of the beliefs that I have today are not the same beliefs I had 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. There's an ongoing understanding that as we follow Christ, He's going to kind of remove the veil that we're all looking through so that we can see more clearly. And sometimes our understandings change. It doesn't mean that Jesus has changed. It doesn't mean that things that he promised have changed. It doesn't mean the things that he said are always going to be have changed. Sometimes it's just the way we see them, the way we view them, the way they interact with us, the way we live our lives. And there are times that an authentic spirituality will ask questions that the church, the traditional church, is uncomfortable with. And if you ask those questions, you can very easily be ostracized. Some of you have experienced this. That's the reason some of you may be here, because we ask all kinds of questions, because we don't claim to know anything, right? We do. I'm just kidding. But there has to be something within us. It's an authentic spirituality that says, where Jesus leads me, I go. And if that makes me, puts me at odds with other people, then I will go there. I want you just to imagine for a moment that Scripture is real. Everything he says is true. I want you just to imagine for a moment, what does the church environment look like when we are in those days where people are avoiding sound teaching and they are going to teachers that will tell them what they want to hear? And he doesn't just say there'll be a couple. There's coming a day when the mass of people will move in that direction. You know, I struggle with this regularly because I I think that we're in that time. I I don't know that we've reached the conclusion of that time because there's a lot farther to go. But I believe we are beginning to move very quickly in that way. And one of the reasons we're moving in that way is our supposed wisdom, our self-expressed supposed wisdom is growing in record amounts because of the technology that we have in our pockets. We have more information at our fingertips than anyone ever has had in the history of humanity. You want to find something out? Google it, right? That's one of the challenges with, with young people today, is they, they don't know how to manage it. See, we grew up, we had to go study and learn stuff, read newspapers, and we had to go figure stuff out, and we had to go somewhere to do this, or we had to know somebody that could impart wisdom to us. You don't need that today. You want to know something, you Google it. A friend of mine is a, an author, and I was reading one of his posts this week. He's become a really... Uh, successful author, and he sells a lot of books that schools will use to allow their kids to read them and then write reports on them. And he got this, he got an email from a student just praising him as an author and his book, just asking if he could have a nice summary of his book um, sometime before Monday. (laughs) And uh, his response to him was, you know, nice try. (laughs) Nice try. Go read the book. Write your own paper. You have just unlimited resources at your fingertips. What does the church look like when we begin to abandon sound teaching and we begin to go to where the teaching tells us what we want to hear? Why do you just imagine what that looks like? What does the church look like? What becomes of the reputation of the church at large? Be known as what? Not believing the same thing? hypocrites whatever you want it to be our practice doesn't line up with what seems clear in scripture people walking away into these pseudo kind of religious environments that are devoid of any truth and yet give them some place to devote themselves because it feels good what does that look like apostasy apostasy there's an uncomfortable reality about what's going to happen before Jesus returns. And what we want to do is we want to come to church and we want to sing some good songs and we want to say, Jesus loves me and he's good to me and he's taking care of me. And one day I'm going to be with him in heaven. And then, but until then, let's just go have a good life. And that's absolutely possible in Christ, but at the same time is never promised to us. A good life with Christ is not one that says you have nothing bad happening. A good life with Christ is one in which Christ is with you. Your identity is in Him. You have an authentic spirituality in which you walk with Him, experience Him, hear Him, see Him. I want to suggest what Jesus is saying is this very thing. Don't worry about whether or not you're the wise or the foolish widow, because that is a self-defeating comparison. Worry about whether your identity is in Christ or in something else. Walk with Him. Experience Him. Love Him. Let Him love you. And in doing that, experience what He's always promised and called us to. Authentic spirituality. Your identity is in Christ. When we truly love Jesus, we're less concerned with whether we've been good enough to get in. Consider that. When we truly love Jesus, we're less concerned with whether or not we're good enough to get in. I spent much of my childhood growing up in the church trying to be good enough to get in. Then I gave up. Some of you may have a similar story. I said, forget this. I'll never be good enough to get in. Why don't I just live it up because the world's more fun anyways? And in that, I bought into a lie that said that The hope of the world, in their own eyes, is better than the hope of Christ. And living however I wanted and personal freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, that was what real living was. Until I realized that was just leading me into more bondage. There wasn't any joy there. You just try to keep up with somebody else. That's why so many people... you know, they, they say birds of a feather flock together. That's why people who have such a terrible opinion of life hang out together. It's, like, it, it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect everything bad to happen, so bad things happen. or At least you see them. Jesus is saying, just follow me. Love me. Know me. Be a part of, my, of me. 2 Timothy 4 says, For the time is coming, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachings to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to truth and wander off in the myths. As for you, always be sober minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think if we're going to go somewhere and we're going to try to find, well, what does the oil look like? This may be it. Because it doesn't say just go do one thing. Just go read a lot of Bible. Just go tell a lot of people about Jesus. Just go to church all the time. Just make sure that the only CDs that you have are worship CDs or whatever's on your playlist is only Christian stuff. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, it's hard not to read things like that and think, okay, there's four things I need to add to my list. I need to make sure I do those four things this week. And I'm going to tell you something. You'll do it for a week couple of weeks, a month, you may even do it for a few years, you will eventually quit. Lists don't work. But when we have our identity in Christ, and we want to live for Him, we want to walk with Him, we want to know Him, we want to experience Him as much as possible, we look at these things as just, this is just what I do. You know, as a parent, there are just some things I do as a parent, and this may surprise some of you, but some of it I don't really like, right? There are some phases of parenthood that I'm just not good at and I don't really like. You know, diapers was one that I did not like. That was one. You know, potty training was necessary to end that one, but that was no fun either. As they get older, they start arguing with me. Right, Emma? sitting in the room, taking notes. Take that down. Give me... I said they start. Argue, go ahead, write it down. <laughs> Arguing with, <laughs> and then they start asking questions that I'm not. I don't necessarily know the answer to. Right? You don't, don't write that down. Don't write that one down. <laughs> I'll tell you when to write something else down. And then they start getting older, and it's time to start letting them go. I don't like that either. There's some things I don't really like, but I do because I'm a parent. They're not things that I have to think about doing. I really don't have to think about feeding the kids. I don't think, gosh, what am I going to do today? Well, I could feed the kids, but I don't think... I don't. I did that yesterday, so I don't think I want to do... I've actually done that for the last year. I think we can take a day off. I, I don't think that way. I mean, I'm a parent. I feed the kids, right? We provide a home for them. We Take them to the doctor when they're sick. We sit down and talk with them when they're upset. I mean, I don't have to have a list that tells me I go do those things. This is what you do to be a good parent. We do those things because we're parents, right? Right? Similarly, in our relationship with Christ, we shouldn't have to have a list that says you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to go to church, you need to have ministry, you need to, to evangelize and tell people about the gospel. I Gosh, I have to do all these things. We just do them because we're with Jesus. There's a very real difference here, and this is what, I, one of the primary things that I think that people, when they stand before Christ and He is, and He says to them, depart from me, I never knew you, I think this will be one of the defining characteristics. Did you do them because you felt like you had to, or did you do them because we're in a relationship together? Do I worship because if I don't, I feel guilty? Or do I worship because I think God will do something? That transactional idea of faith, if I worship, then God will do something for me. Or do I worship because I love Him? He's he's the greatest treasure in life. If I lose everything else, I have Christ. This is one of the reasons he says such incredibly challenging things, like if you love your mother and father and brother and sister more than me, then you, you have no part of me. And we read that and we go, well, how in the world can I not love them? That's not what he's saying. See, we, we so easily slip into this transactional model. If I do the right things, we fall into that works mindset that says, I can be good enough I can, I, I can be acceptable enough. And that's what Jesus has said over and over again. Oh, no, you cannot. And I love you anyways. That's why whenever we put ourselves on pedestals and we think I'm a better Christian than somebody else, no, you're not. There are those that walk with Jesus and there are those that think they walk with Jesus and there are those that could care less about walking with Jesus. That's it. That's it. The reality is, it's just like as a parent cares for their children. There are certain things we do just because we love Jesus. I'm not saying that you don't ever get burned out or that it's never hard or that you never have to drag yourself, yourself out of bed to do something because I would be lying, especially in my case. There are some days that I think, I just, I just don't want to go have that conversation. And, and the Holy Spirit is saying, yes. That's the conversation you need to have. Okay, I'm gonna go have the conversation. But I don't do it to get God's approval, maybe a little, but only in the sense that I know he will be pleased, not in the sense that I'll get something from it. Because this is just what it looks like to follow Jesus. He speaks, I obey. He says go, I go. He says stop, I stop. I think we 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 will do. We're going to have to do a study on the law. Wouldn't that be fun? Would you all come for that? If we did a study on the law, I may write a few of my own to throw in there. <laughs> Thou shalt send the pastor on a Caribbean vacation once a year. I think that's in there. I'll make that one in there. And the reason I say that, do what? Yeah, did get, yeah, did a jet. So I can be with close to Jesus. Right. Thanks for that. That'd be that's, exact, <laughs> that's exactly what I need. I'll, be, I'll just be happy with a beefy V8 if you want to, if you're really looking, but uh, anyways, but the reality is, is that Jesus is just inviting us to walk with him and to be a part of Him. I, I wouldn't want to do a thing on the law just because I think that law is good, and I think you all should do a better job at it. But the law is the indication of what God says. You know what? This is like much of his teaching. You have heard that it was said. But I tell you. See, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Everyone's telling you that this is good, but I tell you. That's what the, do you know what? That's what the law is. You have heard that it was said that it's okay to take the life of someone else if they wrong you. But I tell you, you should not murder. There are those that tell you it's okay that you can have an affair with your neighbor's wife, but I tell you, it's okay if you worship a God that's comfortable with you, but what I tell you is don't worship any other gods but me because they will all disappoint you. They're not real, they have no value, no power, they're a trick. And that's what I think what he's trying to tell us with his parable. Not that some of us are the foolish ones and we need to make sure we're not. But instead what I believe he's saying is those who are wise are the ones who are excited and prepared for his return. He is their identity. That is how they live. It is how they walk. That is how they breathe. Number two, a second thing, and this is hard for some of you, especially parents in the room that have kids that aren't following in the same direction as you. He's talking about a personal faith that cannot be transferred. See, I told you the reason that I believe that the oil, they would not share the oil, was not because they just didn't want to, it's because they couldn't have made the trip. If they gave me, they, they each had enough just for themselves. Our faith is the same way. There are some faiths that believe that you can praise somebody into some reality in heaven, and that is not what Scripture says. We can't make up for someone else's lack of faith with our own. It's very personal. While the church is communal, our faith is very personal, and we cannot take somebody else's faith for ourselves. That means we can't say, I, I hear this all the time from people, when they find out I'm a pastor, which is why I never tell anybody I'm a pastor, they got to dig for that information. Because once they do that, you know, they gloss over. And I, what I'm about to experience, what they, when they find out I'm a pastor is usually not who they really are. It's who they think a pastor wants them to be. We talk about faith and they say, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian. I went to church with my grandma when I was growing up. That's inconsequential when we stand before christ if our faith is not our own someone else's faith can't be transferred to us and a third thing that he's asking us and what does it look like to have plenty of oil is to have an active faith that is preparing for his return i do think that we look at second timothy four those are some things that we need to keep in mind being sober minded are we reasoning learning growing recognizing what is true. Are we enduring suffering? Because we know that in the end days, suffering is going to increase. Do we do the work of an evangelist? The very last words that Jesus spoke to His disciples before He ascended to heaven was go and tell people this good news. Fulfill your ministry, which is talking about how we care for each other within the church. If we're going to look for some things that should embody our own faith, those would be some of them. All of this, I believe, was referring back to a parable we've already talked about. This is what I'm going to close with, a parable of the sower. He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. My encouragement to you is not you need to try harder. (laughs) That is a self-defeating way of living your life. What I want to leave you with is just the question, Do you love Jesus to the extent that you want your identity to be in him? And if you do, you won't have to go about collecting oil. That will just be a part of your daily life. You won't have to think about it. You won't have to rush at the end. That'll just be the way you live your life. And if you're living that life right now, then you have found a place of contentment and joy that he promised you have found a life of fullness and expectation and excitement for what is coming and when that happens when the trumpet sounds and the lightning flashes when jesus arrives we won't be afraid of whether we've done enough we've been good enough we'll just be excited to see our savior is here would you pray with me father god help us to help us to know where we stand Help us not to fool ourselves. I know my biggest frustration and struggle with myself is when I try to tell myself something that's not true to make myself feel better. It's incredible how we can manipulate ourselves. Help us to see what is true and what is real. I pray for those in this room. They're going through a time of suffering and struggle right now, and they need to experience your love, your grace, your presence in their lives. And Father, I pray that in this moment, that they will know that you are with them. You are here. You have said that we are going to suffer. You have said if we're going to follow you, we are going to struggle. And God, we trust you that you'll be with us in those times. Father, I pray that as we continue to worship here, Father, I pray that it would be our love for you that would come out from our hearts, through our mouths as we sing. I pray as we leave this place, That we will leave as a people who are just overwhelmed with authentic spirituality. In which we are walking where you walk, going where you go, loving the people that you tell us to love. Even when others reject us for doing that. I'm so thankful that you are alive and this is a living relationship. I'm thankful that we are able to, to know you and to hear from you even today. I thank you for your word that has preserved your teachings. And I thank you for your spirit that is a part of each one of us so that we can see you, we can hear you, and we can walk with you. Help us to do that as we leave this place. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.